actually not here. She's in another wedding, which is kind of fun. That's, it's fun being in weddings after you're married because you get to re-experience all those, those feelings with the couple. Um, but as, as most weddings went, planning it out a couple years ago, the bride's family took care of the actual ceremony and, and all those things, and then I took care of the honeymoon and planned out the honeymoon. And Emily and I were, were talking about what we wanted to do for a honeymoon, and we didn't really want to do the, the stereotypical beach getaway. It was the middle of February, and we were just like, no. And maybe because we're a little masochistic, we decided to go to the UK in February, which like highs are in like the low 50s, and it's cloudy and rainy, but we loved it. Uh, and we got to adventure all around uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. Um, we rented a car there, uh, drove around. I had to drive on the opposite side of the street and only broke like one traffic law the whole time, so that was good. Um, and in, in planning for it, I was looking online beforehand at like some tours or things we could do. And then I looked at the price tag for those and was like, nah, I don't know. So I, uh, I kind of built my own tour for us to go on. And in doing that, I was looking at things that we should go see and visit. And if you've ever been to the UK, you know that they have castles on castles on castles there, all over in England, in Wales, in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Ireland. Like you're driving on the freeway and there's a castle right there. We drive on the freeway and there's like dead coyotes next to us. So there's, there's, it, it's a different thing. And so we wanted to make sure that in leaving Phoenix, we're going to see these parts of their culture that are so crucial to their history. Um, and so I, I got to look at a lot of these castles online. And there's pictures. You can get all kinds of information on like what they look like and the information when they were built, all this stuff. So I was doing research and in, in as American a way as I could, like kind of like castle tinder, like saying, eh, no, we're not going to do that one. We're not going to. That one's nice. I like that one. Um, <laughs> so was, we, we picked and chose our way. And, and I felt like going into the trip, I had a pretty good grasp of the information around these castles. I, I, I felt like I knew what we were going to see when we were there. And then we show up and I actually step inside this ancient castle and I, I peer into the dungeon, like the actual dungeon where they like threw people. I, I walk up these stairs in the spires on the side of these castles. I, I, I get to stand in the main hall and I get to see all of this that I definitely could not experience cognitively before we had come over. There was something different about experiencing the castle, stepping into it, walking along the drawbridge, all of that. And I think that principle uh, of, of knowing experientially versus knowing cognitively is at the heart of a lot of our life, but it's, it's really at the heart of faith. And it's actually what Jesus, I think, is getting at in this uh, passage in John that we're going to go through. So if you guys want to open up your Bibles with me, we're going to be in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Uh, so yeah, feel free to follow along. I'm going to read aloud. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I want to real quick take a step back and look at the context of, of what Jesus is speaking into here, because the first words he says are, do not let your hearts be troubled, right? He wouldn't have said that if there wasn't some sort of temptation among the people he was speaking to, to, to be troubled, or if they weren't already troubled, right? He's speaking into and to, towards the hearts of the people he's with. So let's, let's actually do a quick review of the last couple chapters here. Jesus, just a few days earlier, uh, has, has raised a man from the dead, a man named Lazarus. And that forces a response. That's not something that you see very often. So everyone around that circumstance has to evaluate, okay, what did that mean? What was the significance? How do we respond to that? And the dominant religious group of the time, the Pharisees, have decided, well, we, we need to kill Jesus because he's doing something that we can't explain. He's taking away the power that we have held for so long and he's undermining it. We need to get rid of this guy. He's changing the guard. And so to be Jesus and to be around Jesus at this time is dangerous. Jesus could get killed at any moment. If you're associating with him, you could get killed. It's mob mentality. There's a lot of of serious, serious danger by being associated with Jesus. And the disciples have felt that. And so for Jesus to take time out and to spend it with his closest friends, with his disciples, it's a very intimate, intimate space. It's pulling them out of the danger of the city and enclosing them in a room together around a table. They're reclining and they're breaking bread and they're drinking with one another. So it's a very intimate space, right? But at the same time, the chapter before this produced a lot of confusion and awkwardness as well in the disciples. Uh, For one example, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Not something that they would have expected of a king. In fact, the lowliest of the servants only does that if they're commanded to do so. That's, that's not something that they really had in their brains for their Messiah and Savior. So that's a little unsettling. And then Jesus actually calls out the one who will, will betray him less than 24 hours later. And, and Scripture says that he gives him a piece of bread to indicate he is the one. That is an awkward scenario, right? It's like, you're, and then he says, what you're going to do, go and do quickly. And none of the disciples really grasp it at that moment because it's so beyond what their cognitive faculties could take in. But that's a a confusing time. And then he foretells Peter's denial. The same one who he told would be the rock on which the church would be built. He says, you're going to deny me three times before the sun rises again. And so there's this simultaneous intimacy, this closeness with Jesus that they're feeling, and this confusion and anxiety. So when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled, he's speaking to troubled hearts there. So that's where we are in this room. And then the immediate phrase that Jesus uses after, do not let your hearts be troubled, is an interesting one. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And the word for believe there uh, implies a sense of entrusting, which is, I think, a little bit different than how we use believe. Like a lot of times in our culture, we just think, you just got to believe, right? Your team's down 20 in the fourth quarter. You just got to (laughs) believe. And it's like this very ethereal thing that's up in the air. And the, the word here actually has a much more tangible and, and almost visceral feel. It's like entrust yourself, give power over to. 
And so do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, saying, hey, here's how you can gain peace in your hearts. It's indicating the method for which we can have peace amongst troublesome circumstances. And what Jesus is indicating there, he's first claiming co-divinity with, with God, right? He's saying, believe in God, believe also in me. He's aligning himself with God, but he's also saying that this God is relational. He's saying that entrusting yourself, in giving power to, in being in relationship with and knowing this God, your heart will find peace. And so that's our call in the midst of troublesome circumstances, in the midst of things that are difficult and hard to entrust ourselves, to give power over to him. So we trust his healing to mend brokenness in the world as we see it now. We trust his justice to be impartial, either now or at the end of time. We trust his forgiveness of sins. We trust his presence in our grief. We trust his redemption in our brokenness. When we do this act of relational trust, what we often find is that the circumstance holds a little bit less weight. It doesn't have power over us like it did before. And I think this actually plays out in how our, our real relationships work, our really healthy relationships. Um, a few years ago, in, in 2011, uh, my dad passed away from pancreatic cancer. And the service that we had, it was at Living Streams, actually, um, and there were hundreds of people that showed up, people that I knew and didn't know, and people that knew me, and that it was the classic, like, I knew you when you were this tall sort of thing. It's like, cool. But I, I got to hear how they felt about my dad and how my dad changed them in some way. And so in, in surrounding myself with these relationships and people that I knew and trusted, my mom, my brother, my family, my friends, the power of the circumstance, the power of my dad being taken away from me didn't hold as much weight. I had a peace because I knew who I trusted and who I had entrusted myself to, both heavenly and earthly. Who I was entrusted to actually allowed my heart to find peace on the least peaceful day circumstance-wise of my life. There's something about relational trust and entrusting yourself and giving power to another that actually frees our hearts from the weight of difficult circumstances. Trust, though, the idea of trust, is not an easy thing to do. It's easy to talk about. It's not easy to actually practice because trust involves inherently a giving over of control to someone else beyond yourself. And that is backwards of what we want to do in our human instinct, right? We don't want to give control over to someone else. Think about when you trust someone with something hard. If they just went out and tweeted that thing, like they're in control of whatever you share. They could go out and say it to anyone they want. That's why it's difficult to share and entrust ourselves with people. So the character of the person that we entrust ourselves to is crucial to our desire to trust, to our practicing of trust. And right here, Jesus realizes that, and he gives us an indication of the character of this God who is relational. He's done it for chapters to this point throughout the gospel, and now he reiterates it here. He, he tells us that he's going to prepare a place for us, and that he's going to bring us there with him eventually. And the language he uses there, I think sometimes some of your translations might use the word like he's preparing mansions or rooms or dwelling places. It's kind of like all over the place metaphors. But the language that Jesus uses here, I think it's helpful if we go back and see how it might have been received at the time. Jesus seems to be using some sort of uh, indication or, or kind of reference to ancient Jewish betrothal processes. 
Now, just a, a quick overview of what those are. When a man loves a woman, this isn't that talk, I promise. When a man, it's a different one. We'll get there. When a man loves a woman, he wants to marry her. He asks her uh, for her hand in marriage. And then once he works out a bride price with, with the father, uh, he actually goes away. He goes to his father's house and he builds onto his father's house a honeymoon suite for he and his wife to live into. And oftentimes he'd spend a year or two devoting himself to the work of building this space. Jesus is using that language to describe what he's doing for us here. And so he's revealing that the character of this God that he's telling us to entrust ourselves to when our hearts are troubled, the character of this God is committed to us. He's so committed to us that he's willing to, to fully like, go beyond even marriage, right? Because he dies for us less than a day later. He goes beyond that. He builds a space for us. He is committed to who we are. Not only that, he's eager to be with us. Think about for the, the groom in that betrothal ceremony, right? He's working hard at building this space and, and thinking, oh, this is where our bedroom's going to be, and this is where we'll, we'll prepare our food, and this is where our sheep are going to go. He's eager to be with her. And for her, she's waiting, right? She's just waiting for him to come back and take her with him. There's a sense of eagerness. Jesus desires to be with us. He desires to know us. That's the God that we entrust ourselves to. He cares for us. He prepares a space for us. He welcomes us into the family. He desires to be with us. And he is all in and for us. And that's made agonizingly clear less than 24 hours later on the cross. It moves beyond till death do us part and says, not even death can part us. That's the power of the character of this God. And then he says, you guys know the way to where I'm going. And at that point, there's probably a little bit of silence in the room. It's probably like in the classroom when a teacher says something that not everyone gets and they just kind of smile and nod like, okay, Pythagorean theorem, easy, yeah. And then Thomas, because Thomas is the one who asks great questions, is like, guys, I don't get it. Like, I, Jesus, we don't, we don't know where you're going. We don't, how are we supposed to know the way? We don't, we don't have this conceptualization. And so now that we've learned that God is relational, uh, we actually shift to see what that relationship looks like and, and the uh, specifics of that relationship. And so Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you've known my Father. He's saying that he is personally the way. This is one of the most radical statements that Jesus makes in the gospel. And I want to get at two specific facets of it that are important. One, just to, to hammer it home, it's a relational statement. He's claiming that he, as a person, the God-man, is the way. No other worldview expresses that idea that a person, that an individual, that a relationship is the way. Religions in general have, have sought throughout centuries to give you the hierarchical religious steps to the way. It's like, hey, you can earn your way. You can earn the direction there. A lot of Eastern religions will, will talk about self-enlightenment. They'll talk about meditation. They'll talk about knowing oneself. That's the way. Eventually, once you know yourself and have denied your desires enough, you'll accomplish the way. In our Western world, secular religion will tell you, well, you just got to get the things, right? You just got to get the car or the house or the wife or the kids, the family, the, the money, the job, whatever. That's the way. That's the way to purpose. That's the way to significance. And millionaires still struggle with depression. 
every other worldview that humans have, have constructed throughout history has said that, that we, can, we can point ourselves to the way. It's never said that an individual is the way. And so Jesus is reminding us here that this Christian life, this following of him, is not strictly about piety or well-built morality or singing the right words or even showing up every week to church. Those things are good and important, but if they don't come from a relationship with him, if they don't come with knowing the way, they're hollow. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Knowing him is the core of our human existence. It starts with a relationship. So that's the first thing that this claim is. It's relational. I think the second thing that I want to pick out of this claim is that it's radical. See, it's radical because for him to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, implies that there's not another way to do this thing. It's making you uh, make a decision on, on responding to what he's saying. It forces us to say, okay, he can't both be the way and not the way. If he is the way, I have to respond in some form or fashion to what he's saying. It forces us to respond. That's a radical claim. And our culture, you've probably heard this at some point, tends to push back against a claim that takes that much commitment. They say that, you know, that's just too exclusive. Jesus is just too exclusive. And I, I want to address that claim because if you haven't already heard it, you're going to hear it at some point more than likely when you talk about religion and faith. Because I think it's, even though it's well-meaning for people, it's a shallow, shallow statement. And it, it falls apart in two main ways. In, in the first way, it's super culturally narrow. See, when Jesus says these words, that I am the way and the truth and the life, he's speaking into a context that is dominated by religious language. And this religious language says, in order to get to the way, in order to know God, you've got to do this, 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 which creates a hierarchy. It means there are more holy people and that they've done enough to get the power or the recognition and to know God well. And for him to say that it's about a relationship completely disrupts that. It flips it on its head. He actually opens it up to people. The people that couldn't be holy enough now can know Jesus relationally and be freed. It's inclusive. The core of what he's saying in the context is opening up. It's not closing in. The culture was already closing in enough. Christ in saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life opens this world and this life up for people to know him and be freed by him. So to say that it's too exclusive is actually culturally narrow. It's not understanding the culture that he's speaking into when he's saying these words. The second way that this uh, too exclusive claim falls apart is that it's hypocritical. Because first, in the, the very sense of saying that something is too exclusive, you're being exclusive, right? You are excluding something. So, so it's, it's kind of hypocritical in that way. But, but also, and maybe even more nuanced, uh, to say that it's too exclusive here implies that exclusivity is bad or wrong when the reality is we all live exclusive lives in some way. Everyone has to be exclusive about something. We all are exclusive about murderers. Wait, like, like if, if somebody's committed murder, we, we lock them away, right? We, we put them outside. They've committed an action that is excluded from our normal social constructs. Look at any society ever. No one has ever said that cowardice or being cowardly is a virtue. 
C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. Being a coward has never been considered a good thing. We've always been exclusive of cowards. And so the principle of exclusivity is not what people are, are meaning when they say it's too exclusive. They, they don't have a problem with being exclusive. They have a problem with the commitment that this exclusivity causes. See, the one who says that Jesus is too exclusive ultimately is establishing their own boundary, defined by their own standards. And all of a sudden, when somebody says, no, my standards, these standards are the truth, the life, the way, that pushes against and forces you to evaluate your standards. It forces you to say, will I leave these things behind? Will I give up my own standards? See, people who say Jesus is too exclusive don't actually mean that statement. What they mean is that they're not willing to give up control of their own way for the sake of Jesus's. They're not willing to entrust themselves to anything if it means leaving behind their own way. Saying Christ is too exclusive is actually saying, I do not wish to give up the power of defining my own path. I have things that I need to hold on to and choose to do instead. G.K. Chesterton captured this really cleverly, as he always does. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The difficulty of this statement means that I have to leave behind and have to be willing to leave behind parts of myself to go chase Jesus. I have to be willing to leave behind uh, the pursuits of power that I have sought in my life. I have to be willing to leave behind my lust and my greed. I have to be willing to leave behind all of these things. And then we get to the end of this passage where Philip uh, actually responds rather than Thomas. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. You've said you're the way, the truth, the life. Just just show us the Father and that's enough. He's basically saying part the skies, which is, is funny because he's been with Jesus for the last few years. Like he's seen all the things that Jesus, he's like, you know, I know you made a blind man see with mud and I know you just raised a dead guy a few days ago, but if you could just show us the father a little bit more. Philip is still in the place of cognitive knowledge when he asks this question. He's looking for empirical evidence. And it's interesting, when you dig into the language, it reveals all of this. And this is where we're going to land today. In saying, show us the Father, the word he uses for show there implies an appearance or a miracle, something in front of your eyes, empirical evidence, something I can see, touch, feel. Show us the Father. And Jesus' response here is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the word he uses for seen there is different than what Philip asks for. Philip says, show us. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The word for seen there implies an understanding or a perception of. It moves to a level deeper than cognitive knowledge and moves to a realm of experiential knowledge. Jesus says, it doesn't matter what I've shown you fact-wise about the castle. If you haven't stepped into it, you haven't seen me. You don't know me. Jesus is saying that the thing that we need to do as believers, the thing that we need to do as humans is to see him, to perceive him, to understand the empirical evidence. It's all around us. We just need to have eyes to see. A good way to, to think about it, you guys have probably at some point used this word or heard this, this phrase used. And you say, somebody's explaining something to you and you say, oh, I see. Right? We don't actually mean, oh, I see. 
I don't, I'm not taking it in sensory-wise, but I actually mean I perceive, I understand, I've grasped what you're saying. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that the empirical evidence matters much less. It's what you see in it. We all have the same empirical evidence. Atheists to Christians, Buddhists to Muslims, we're all looking at the same world. It's about the way that we perceive it. It's about the way that we understand what the way, the truth, and the life is. Jesus is saying here, it's about knowing me, Philip. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know him already. And that's what this Christian life is at its heart. It's relational. It's about knowing. It's about stepping into the castle, not just having all these cognitive understandings of doctrine. It's about knowing who Jesus is and building your life on that knowing. Everything we do here, all of this stuff is about seeing and knowing. Before we play our chords up here, before we succinctly sing and sway to the songs, before we partake in our grand do-gooding, we must firstly and foundationally entrust ourselves to him. Jesus is what brings us in here and leaves alongside of us outside this room. He's constantly calling to us. He's showing us who he is and who he's designed us to be. He is in breaths, in births, and in bonfires. He is the living water and the bread, the enlivening of our elementary needs. He's in the miracles we choose to name and the ones we choose not to name. In every path we walk, we can know the way. In every thought we think, we can perceive the truth. And in every singular moment, we have awareness of the life. Might we have eyes to see it all? Not just be shown it. Might we have eyes to see it all?